This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. Because it's not the plan. This is the whole piece of it. The plan is the finished product. It's the process to get to the plan. So it's engaging your stakeholders, bringing everyone to the table to make the decisions, to go through the processes, to do the education, to do the training. That's all part of the plan. Hi, and welcome to Ian Weekly, and this is your host, Todd DeVoe speaking. And this week, we are talking about safe schools. Oddly enough, last week, I was just at the Safe Schools Conference in Orange County, California. And in fact, I was actually one of the presenters there. I spoke about recovering from an act of violence, um, specifically at this time, was talking about on campuses, high school, college uh, campuses and well I guess K through 12 right and and college so it was a really well attended event so excited that the room that I was in was was full uh, we had a we had a full uh, attendance and it was kind of cool uh, I was really honored to, to be there to speak and and to talk to really some really great educators uh, some law enforcement um, officers that were in the classroom and it was it was a really good discussion as well as far as planning for and re- and recovering from that event and you know that's kind of what we talked about it was really exciting and what my biggest takeaway was from this conference was the fact that it was completely full it was sold out and each workshop I went into, it was full. You know, so it wasn't just unique for me that I had a full full room. Every room I went into was full. People were learning about different things as far as keeping our children safe when they're at school. And which we expect that as parents, right? And I think it's uh, really important to understand that schools are working hard to keep our kids safe, not just from the bullying, not just from outside invaders, if you will, just in general of really keeping great educational experiences for uh, for the students. It was so much so that it's full that I was talking to the organizers and they're talking about moving the event to a larger venue. This was the ninth year of the event and they're talking about moving the event to a larger venue next year uh, just because they want to add more uh, people at the conference and they want to add more uh, tracks uh, for education purposes and you know I found that kind of really cool. Oddly enough today and it's not planned out it just happened to be this way today Soraya Sutherland comes to us from Campus Safety Group and we actually recorded the the episode prior to me going to the conference but that being said uh, I think it was apropos that I went to the conference it just came up that, that this is when uh, she was coming out for for her uh, for the episode and I'm excited to have her on the show but before we get into the interview I, I want to invite you to reach out to us on Facebook Twitter LinkedIn Instagram and of course forums.emweekly.com and this is really your community and without you I can't do this I would just be talking to myself and it would be kind of boring so I'm so honored that I get to spend a few minutes with you each week uh, on this on the show and bringing in great guests and and great topics 
And again, this is your community. So if you have any ideas, any guests that you'd like to hear from, um, any topics that you'd like to hear about, reach out to us and, and let us know. Now, on to the interview. Hey, welcome to Ian Weekly. And uh, today I'm excited to have uh, Saria Sutherland here. And uh, she is an emergency manager with the Campus Safety Group. And uh, Saria, welcome to Ian Weekly. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Sure. Sorry, tell me just a little bit about yourself and how you got involved with emergency management. Okay. Well, um, my road's a little non-conventional. I actually started my, actually my whole life, I wanted to be a musical theater actress. <laughs> and so I had studied to be a musical theater actress, went to the East Coast for college, um, was in a conservatory for music. Being in D.C. and being around the politics of everything. And we were right, it was right in the beginning of 2002. And we were, we had just engaged in the war. And I really wanted to have a deeper understanding um, as to what we were doing, what was going on. And I took a anthropology class on Islam. And it was enough for me to change my major and come back to the West Coast. Um, study political science. And so I really started getting involved in emergency management through the academic community and taking a few classes. But it wasn't until I took an emergency management class in my master's program at Cal State Long Beach that I was really interested in this field specifically. Ironically, I didn't want to completely throw all my uh, cookies into one basket and get a master's in emergency management because I didn't want it to silo me into one area. So I decided to go for a broader uh, degree in public administration. Um, but look, this is where we are now. So I took the course, accepted an internship uh, working in Huntington Beach, and the rest is history, as they say. Um, but I won't say it wasn't, I, I did have a little bit of dabbling in emergency management. Um, I remember back in sixth grade, I had picked to do a research project on tsunamis. And I had to build a model. Um, well, I mean, I, at the time, I was like, I can do this. I'm going to build a tsunami. And I, it didn't turn out. <laughs> I, I really started, you know, going back. My roots are kind of there. It was There were little things here and there growing up. And I was, who knew that this is where I would be? That's awesome, actually. As, and you know what? And most people who, who listen to the show know that I'm actually an MPA as well. And I think it's a really a good, well-rounded degree, especially I think it fits well in the emergency management uh, field as well. So what exactly do you guys do over at the Campus Safety Group. So we do everything from plans to training to education to parent involvement to just coming in and helping you figure out where you are and where you need to be um, to actually doing things hands-on. So we do everything from um, local level, so local schools, local districts, private schools, all the way through higher ed. Um, so we really have a different, we have a very diverse group of individuals that work with us. And we have a specialist that is a is the person for um, all of the compliance standard training with the safe school planning laws in California. Um, and then we have backgrounds um, from law enforcement, EMS, um, emergency management, public safety, and education, um, as well as crisis communication. So we kind of have a diverse group of people that offer different avenues and aspects of the public safety realm. And I had mentioned before, we do everything from basic plans to hands-on training, where we actually go in and we train teachers um, and staff. 
staff and not just in the basics. Everything, the hot topic right now is active shooter, but the basics on why we are, what we were all talking about this in the 80s, right? Because we have earthquakes all the time and we live in Earthquake County. So doing actual hands-on training on other hazards, I'm not just active shooters. So, and then we also help establish the conversation. So helping parents start talking about these things with their kids and helping children understand that it's not just, you know, these one-off events. It's trying to instill this culture of um, preparedness and compliance within schools. Um, right now, just in California, but I, ideally throughout the, the country. I'm a child of the 80s. I grew up, I was born in the, in the 70s and grew up in the 80s. And, and we always were preparing for the big attack from the Soviet Union nuclear bomb stuff. And we used to do like these the drills and air raid back in the 70s at least. We used to do the raid drills and stuff like that. Um, and I think it was just part of our culture back then is to just always understand that this is what those sirens meant and whatnot. And I think we kind of got away from that. Is this some of the stuff that you guys are doing as well as trying to bring that culture preparedness back to the school age children? Yeah, and we absolutely, and we're trying to do it in a way that's not scary, um, that it's relatable, that it's not something that we ha- these kids have to be afraid of. And I think that gets lost a lot of the times um, in the translation of a lot of the education materials. Um, so it's not only just telling them about the different things that can happen, but it's also what they can do to help prepare. What can they do? What are some proactive things that they can do to make them feel, help them feel like they are safer and that they're taking action? They're actually doing something about it. And that's something that gets lost and kids get stuck in this, oh my gosh, something really bad's going to happen and I don't know what to do. So it's giving them the problem, but offering solutions in a child age appropriate way for them to be proactive and feel that they can contribute to that conversation. It's not just this big, scary, bad thing. It's, yeah, we got it. We have to deal with it. So how do we deal with it? And how do we do with it in an age appropriate environment where they feel empowered to prepare? So as emergency managers, one of our roles um, in the community is to go out and talk to community groups and even to the point to where in some cases, like what we did when I was at Seal Beach, uh, was go into the neighborhoods, like almost like a neighborhood watch program and talk to each little block. Um, And in doing so, I always felt that it was easy to talk to the adults about things, but I never really had a lot of cool stuff to engage the kids. What what can we do as emergency managers to engage, not just outside of school, but just even the community? Community. How do we engage children and get them ready for preparedness for disasters? Well, I think I think there's a few things. I know that the Red Cross has a pillowcase program that's great, um, and it helps them prepare in different avenues and putting important things um, into documents. I mean, into their their pillowcases. Um, but I also think that you know we have all these M programs. We have all you know ch- after school chess club, and we have we have so many different after school programs. Why don't we have an ambassador program for preparedness? So essentially, it's like FEMA has the Youth Council, why don't we start developing some community-based groups, organizations within our local schools um, in developing preparedness ambassadors? And we start it young. We start it at the elementary age level and we make, we build it. And it allows kids to, one, learn about different things that are out there and what we can do about them, but then also be proactive ambassadors um, to help reach other members of the community. Because if you're truly going to change culture, you start with the 
the children. You have to. Um, the parent, the kids go home and they start telling their parents about all the different things that they learned or that they participated in. And then they're starting to drive that change within families. Um, and I, I really think there's a, a need, but I also think that there's a, a want and it just hasn't been organized in a way for people to feel that it's going to be a, um, a positive, um, progressive solution. So I think that would be very helpful. Um, it would give people, a, a, give a lot of kids some great um, information and it would also give them something to do to then now, again, like we, we talked about, being proactive in that preparedness initiative. I've told this story before, but I think I think here it's kind of apropos. Um, we had an earthquake about four years ago. Not, not a very big one. It was like a 5.2 or 3, something like that. And my son at the time, who was about 11, um, he took my daughter, who was about two, and went <laughs> under the coffee table in the middle of our in the middle of our den, um, which was like really the only hard table. And I was so proud of the fact that he he knew to do that um, and didn't think about it and didn't ask. He just acted and did. And I think that's because of school programs like what you're talking about, where he would practice duck and cover um, at his elementary school. How do we fund something like that to make more training available for schools? Gosh, that's a tricky question. <laughs> um, I think there's a lot of great organizations out there that are doing work like this already. I think it's a matter of forming these community coalitions, um, partnerships between local districts and organizations like the Red Cross. Gosh, I'm trying to think of, I know Save the Children does a lot of great work um, and they do a lot of planning for children. So I think it might just be tapping into some pre-existing organizations and then developing partnerships within our local communities and involving that whole community approach, bringing in the fire to police department um, and really setting a standard, um, even if it's just a pilot program, to try and roll out something like this, um, you know, countywide, locally, nationwide, etc. But I think tapping into pre-existing resources is obviously the best option, but it's really trying to get this whole community approach involved um, because we know, I mean, you know this, being a parent, schools are so incredibly underfunded. This mm-hmm. is not just a new revelation, historical precedent. This has ha- happened for decades and the money is just not there. I, I have teachers telling me they can't buy pencils for their students. How are they going to afford, you know, buying supplies, um, doing, you know, providing extra training, those things. So understanding that I think the PTAs really have to step up as well um, and get in, especially with the school site councils that are writing these school plans, getting them involved in providing these education opportunities, not only to parents, but also to students. What does your program look like? We kind of have, I, I can't say it's a one size fits all model because mm-hmm. it, it's not. Um, every organization has different needs. So we would do, initially what we do is we come in and we do an assessment. So some people contact us and they say, hey, this is what I need and this is all I need. Great. We can help you do that. Um, or they say, I don't know where we are. Can you come in and do essentially a, not an audit, but an assessment, um, see what we need and then kind of develop a roadmap going from there. Um, they are like, hey, we need everything under the sun and we know that we need this and we need you to come in and help us partner and develop the program. Part of what we do and that I feel is really important is we come in and we help develop sustainability. So my job is to develop a program that I can walk away from and that will be able to continue to run without our involvement. Um, obviously, we like to be involved, but that's the purpose of it is to develop something that can be run internally and continued. Because if we've done our job right, people then are educated, they're aware, they're knowledgeable, and then they continue to make those changes and move forward on a strong foundation. And a lot of the time, the foundation isn't there to begin with. Um, so it's helping develop that foundation, developing those strong um, key components to help move their program forward, and then being able to walk away and say, you've 
succeeded and you have all the tools you need now to continue this program. We obviously don't get up and leave and say, good luck, you're on your own. But that's the the idea is that we, we have to customize it based on what people need. And a lot of the times they need a lot, but they can't afford it. They can't afford it right off the bat. And so we can scale it back. We do phased approaches. Um, you know, it's funny. I always have said, I don't let money be an issue. And my husband's like, you can't work for free. It's true. I mean, it's unfortunate that safety is not a priority in every uh, learning environment. And, and we're finding that it shouldn't be, this should be something that's a given right for every child within our entire country and that there should be no money tied to it. It should be something that's automatic and that every school should be very well established with school safety plans and education and training and supplies. I mean, that I feel like is a fundamental right of our kids. Um, It's not. There's a lot of stratification across the country and even just across local districts within our area. So that begs the question, what are some of the challenges that you have faced in working with schools? Uh, So I think there's a few. I think the first is lack of understanding um, of what they they need. So we know that there's a lot of federal mandates and guidance around compliance under NIMS. um, But also in the state of California, we have the California Safe School Planning laws that also dictate a lot of what we have in place and what they need to be doing and how often they need to be doing it. So I think there's two parts to this. Um, There's this and if this law came out, there was a lot of funding related to getting this implemented and in place and established. And then as time went on, funding went away. Um, Those who were trained in how to do it have retired, left, moved on, etc. So you've got the knowledge of left as well. So you've got that issue. But then you also have with all the budgetary cuts, you have people who were either dedicated emergency managers or had some type of experience or training in this um, have either are no longer with the organization for budgetary reasons or have retired or turnover. Um, and then those duties that were assigned to one individual or a team of individuals have now been given to one person as an ancillary duty, you know, other duties as assigned. Mm-hmm. It's always the joke is <laughs> other duties as assigned and everything else. And now ranked really low on their priority list or it's on the list of a hundred other things that they have to do that is pressing today, that is has to get done today. And writing the plan, doing the training may not be up on the forefront because they just don't have the resources to do it. So I think that's definitely an issue. I also think budgetary issues are in, we talked about this briefly, um, there's not a lot of money to hire dedicated emergency managers. And unfortunately, schools need someone like cities that are dedicated to doing this, that are professionals in the field that know what they're doing, that understand the ins and outs of all the federal pieces and aspects and all the plans and training. And they're involved in these communities and coalitions that we have already pre-established for information sharing. And they just, they don't have it. They don't have, can't afford to hire someone and they, they don't have those resources that are dedicated to them and the help that they get ancillary through the fire department or police department within the community just just isn't enough um, because they're or they have someone who's doing it but they're on a skeleton staff um, they're doing emergency management and they're doing you know additional duties so that's definitely an issue and then also support I think you know until we have a grassroots movement and I think we're starting to see it in this country or um, after what's been happening across our schools the past six months um, but parents really really have to start asking some questions and being honest with themselves um, because no parent wants to hear or wants to admit, I guess you could say, that their child's school is not safe. Um, you hear 
I can't tell you how many times I hear or I see written in newspapers that we have great plans or we do training or we're, you know, we've, we're compliant with the laws X, Y, or Z. And no, knowing what we know, we know that that's not true. And so we need to be honest about what are we being told and what's actually happening. And I speak, I hope I wear two hats. I'm a professional in the field and I know what I know, but I'm a parent as well. And I see this as well. You know, I see it from both sides. It's scary. It's, it's really scary. And so those are realities that we face and it's no fault. I, you know, we can't point the finger at anybody. I think it's, it's a systemic problem that's been going on for decades and we have to fix it. Um, and just being, I see so many reactive solutions to this problem right now, especially everybody gets so nervous about all the active shooter stuff. And then they're like, oh my gosh, we're going to do an active shooter drill next week. And these plans aren't well thought out. There's no resources for parents or children. They're kind of slapped together last minute. I mean, it's complete chaos. And so we really need to go back to, we can't be reactionary to this. We have to be more thoughtful in our preparedness and actually do some phase planning before we start putting these initiatives together. So I can't say there's one thing problem. I think it's not just school. It's this general lack of, I guess, not, I don't know what the most appropriate word would be, interest. I don't know if it's interest even. I think it's almost avoidance on preparedness in general. And it's leaking, it's seeping into our schools. Yeah, I, I see that. I see that a lot as well. And it's funny, I, I was actually talking to a small university and the, the guy who I was talking to is really frustrated. And he goes, yeah, the, his vice president is like, oh, well, we can just borrow a plan for somebody else and just change our name and put our name in and we'll be covered. Well, we don't know that doesn't work that way, you know, but a lot of schools do it that way, you know. And, and say, it, a lot. Go, go, please go. No, I, yeah, a lot of schools do. And a lot of people feel that they say, oh, you have a great plan. Can we just borrow yours? And that's all great and well until you actually have to use it. Nobody knows what the plan says um, because it's not the plan. This is the whole piece of it. The plan is the finished product. It's mm-hmm. the process to get mm-hmm. to the plan. So it's engaging your stakeholders, bringing everyone to the table to make the decision, to go through the processes, to do the education, to do the training. That's all part of the plan. So borrowing a plan from one school or another school isn't, that's the end thing that you get when you're done with the process. It's the whole approach to it. That's what people are missing. Um, And that's what we're finding in all of these incidents on the back end was nobody knew what the plan said and realizing that this may not go as how you predicted it, because it almost never does. But it's that process of engagement, of collaboration, of bringing key stakeholders to the table to walk through your responses, to walk through what to do. That's the value. That's the value in what in the plan at the end of the day. It's not the actual document. What I find interesting, especially with K-12 schools, is that People are afraid to exercise with the kids. They, they're somehow or another, they feel that the kids are going to get scared or whatever. But how do we get people to understand that exercising with the students is very important? The rest of that story when we return from our break. Emergency managers need exercise in order to test preparedness and efficiency during an emergency situation. TTX Vault provides pre-assembled, pre-filled out tabletops, drills, and functionals so you can exercise more effectively and at a reduced cost. With TTX Vault, customers receive either a disk or flash drive pre-uploaded with the exercise of their choice. Print out the documents, review, fill in the information, and you are ready to execute the exercise. Your first step to preparedness is going to ttxvault.com. Emergencies happen. 
whether they're related to medical emergencies, threats of physical violence, weather related, or other. One of the most difficult things during an emergency is to find help and quickly and efficiently communicate with all parties, regardless of whether you're an administrator, law enforcement, or the end user. With Titan HST, we help distort time by creating high-tech yet simple to use mobile-based applications that connect you with the people who can help you. At Titan HST, we believe in the power of people. Welcome back from that quick break and thank you so much for listening to the sponsors because without them, we couldn't do what we're doing here at Ian Weekly and hit them up, check them out, say hi, tell them that uh, we sent you. Now for the rest of the story. How do we get people to understand that exercising with the students is very important? So I think it's the approach um, more than anything. And we have to, I mean, gone are the days where we can't talk about this because we have to talk about it because it's very real and it's happening. And it's not just, you know, the intruder situation. There's a lot of other threats that can impact our school. So I think that's the first piece. I think the second piece is, is how you approach it. So like I was mentioning, a lot of these exercises are done kind of thrown together last minute. And there's not a lot of forethought or afterthought in doing some of these exercises. So that's another issue that comes into play. I think I'm trying to avoid giving a specific example, but a great example would be if you're going to do an active shooter exercise at a, say, elementary school, you need to do, yes, you need to give parents information on the front end, but it's A, what are we then sending home with parents on for reinforcement? So what are commonly asked questions that come, well, here are some potential questions that your students could have after this event. And here are some answers because most parents aren't experts in active shooter and their kids come home after experiencing an active shooter exercise and they're confused and they don't know what to do and they're scared and parents don't have the resources to answer these questions. So where are those resources coming from? They need to be able to provide some back-end documentation as well to say, here's some common asked questions. These are some things your children might ask you. Here are some common, here are some responses that are vetted responses through, you know, your, through a team of people that develop this. The other piece is, is let's figure out what are some common signs and symptoms post, if, you know, exercise events like this that our kids might be experiencing. Here are some common signs of stress to look out for in your children and providing that to parents as well. And then provide resources to them. So our school psychologist will be on site to answer any questions for the next two weeks between these hours. Here's her contact information, her email address, et cetera. So being able to then give parents these resources to say, I need help because I don't know how to deal with it. That's another key aspect of it. I think that there is a way to address all of these different exercises that is real for kids, but makes it not scary because it gives them tools to then do something about it. And so I think we have to be approach more than anything. And it's this engagement on the front end of pre-planning on bringing those key stakeholders that need to be involved in that planning team that's so critical, that's just not being addressed. Um, and I, until we start developing some of this, uh, of these teams of people that address not just the actual exercise, but the psychological impacts and then resources for parents on the back end to deal with it, we're going to continue to see issues with kids coming home crying because they're scared to death and they somebody with a gun is going to walk into school. And so we, we really have to make it a more a kid-friendly approach when we're dealing with these issues. Agreed, here's an example. Um, at my child's school, um, they told first graders that a wild animal might come on campus. Well, my daughter can reason pretty well. And she's like, mom, 
why would a wild animal be on campus? I'm like, you're right. <laughs> a wild animal will not be on campus. We do not live anywhere near an area where there would be a wild animal ever roaming the streets unless, you know, some, they decided to airlift a bunch of lions and drop them in our neighborhood. (laughs) We just don't live in these areas that have this issue. And so that ensued a very real conversation with my daughter on, hey, listen, you understand right and wrong. And I think there's a lot of research out there that goes back to when kids get that intuition, that feeling, that gut feeling that just something isn't right. Um, And talking to your kids about it, like listening to them and having them tell you in their words, you know, what they experienced and and everything. So, I mean, I think it goes beyond that um, complicated question that I don't necessarily have the full answer to. But I think it's more of this, you know, well thought out um, approach to these exercises. Otherwise, you're doing more harm than you're doing good if you're just putting them together, throwing them together without afterthought. Right. You know, one of the things I always find interesting is the last time we've had a a death uh, in a fire in a school was March 31st, 1954. And it was in Chictawaga, New York. And, you know, it's amazing. 1954. I mean, you know, that was a long time ago. And we, what do we do? We do fire drills all the time. The right. kids know how to stand up. The little kids hold each other's hand and they walk out to the back to their assembly point and then they wait for the bell to ring again and they all go back in. You know, I don't see this is you know, and me as a parent, I have two children. One's high schooler now, and the other one's in elementary school. And I don't see it being a bad thing if we do a drill once a month or or whatever to get them used to not being afraid to do what they have to do. We do duck and cover drills, you know, back in the day for nuclear bombs. And I, and I don't think that most of the kids growing up back in the 70s and the 80s are, are worse for the wear because of that. What is it that's a fear that we have as parents today that we don't want our children going through these exercises? I think there's a few pieces to this. I think one is that we don't want our kids to feel that school is an unsafe place to be because kids go to school and they've, I mean, histor- I mean, for the most part, have felt safe, that school is a safe place to be, not an unsafe place to be. And that they're in a situation where they're separated from their parents. Um, and they're relatively young. We're talking elementary school age um, specifically, where there's nothing we can, we won't be able to do anything about it because we won't be there, right? Our educators are there. So I think it's this, do we really want to tell them there's this big, bad, terrible place out there called the world <laughs> that terrible things might happen at school. Um, and so I think that's definitely a lot of apprehension on behalf of parents. Number one, um, I think number two, you have what we're asking children to do um, is almost counterintuitive to how children are in general, right? We're asking them to be very quiet to either run away. And that's a whole nother issue with school. Um, because they don't want their kids running away, right? We want to keep them with us. So we're telling them to run um, or we're telling them to hide which and be real quiet and not talk. And then we're telling them to then fight back um, if they have no other choice. And if somebody has a weapon, there's obviously, there's a size comparison um, between a, an intruder and a small child. Um, but I think that there's, it's a very complex issue because unlike a nuclear weapon, that it's a, a weapon that's designed to explode and cause, you know, wreak havoc and damage and death. There's not an actual physical person people are in, they're confronted with. An intruder, an active shooter situation, they're at some point might be face to face with somebody who's making decisions to do harm to them. So I think that there is, it's a very 
complicated, complex um, issue. I'm not a psychologist. I can't speak on behalf of that. Um, I, I, but I know that a, there's a lot of apprehension related to telling kids that school's not safe and that something might happen. And what do you do? But we have to talk about it because it is happening. And I don't want my kid to be the kid that didn't have that conversation with their parents and didn't know what to do. We really have to teach them, hey, if you feel scared, you get out of there. You get out and you get out quickly and you will never be in trouble if you run because you were scared. You felt something was wrong. So what's the difference do you think? I mean, and let's just take active shooter off the table for a second that we're, we're preparing our children for in the Midwest tornado drills, right? They all know the siren goes off. They should go to the, to the basement or to the, to the tornado shelter. Um, you know, fire drills. We know that we need to evacuate the school for a fire drill. Um, you know, earthquake drills here in the West Coast, you know, duck and cover, hold on. We go through that practice as well. You know, and I don't think the kids, and again, maybe it is that idea that it isn't an individual. And that's a really good point when you bring that up, that it's, now we're talking about an individual that's trying to do harm compared to these abstract things like an earthquake that's going to do damage. You know, is that really what it is with our parents that we're more afraid that they can't handle that aspect of, of the active shooter, if you will, or is it that are we afraid as parents that our children in a sense is being taken away? I think, I think it's both. Um, I think it's absolutely both. I can't speak for every parent out there, um, but I can say as a parent, um, I, I think it's both. I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of things we can't shelter our kids from anymore because of the world and social media and what they're exposed to through different outlets. Um, we as kids, I as a child was never exposed to because of we just the availability of information wasn't there. Um, but I think it's both factors. And I also think that parents don't have the education or the knowledge or even the experience or the resources to handle the conversations. I mean, most parents don't know what to say. And, you know, it's like those really uncomfortable conversations. And you're like, well, if I say the wrong thing, what's going to happen? What are the repercussions of it? And there's not a good resource for parents. You know, there's not, there's not a great resource for parents to use to talk to their kids about these things. So it's a very, it's a hard area. I mean, I think parents are scared because they don't know what to do and they don't know what to say. And there's not really a resource for them to use to have these conversations with a kindergartner, first grader. Um, and that's challenging. Uh, so I think there's two pieces. That it's definitely twofold, um, at least from my experience as a parent. I can only speak from personal experience. So that would be that would be my take on it. I think this is one of the hardest conversations as far as for, for EMs to have with people is that sometimes we could be clinical and it, and it is what it is at, at, at aspects, especially those of us that have been practitioners for a long time in, in the field. Um, and then to understand that there is an emotional and sometimes physical aspects of this thing that, that occurs to people uh, when you start talking about the dangers in the world. And you're right. I think we have to do a better job uh, of making these scary, sometimes terrifying um thought process is a, a little less so for those that were when we're talking about preparedness. If somebody's interested in getting a hold of, of you, how, how can they find you? They can find our company. Um, we have, we're on Facebook and social media um, through Facebook and Twitter at Campus Safety Group, um, just the Campus Safety Group handle. Um, they can contact me through, um, I also have a Facebook and Twitter um, page as well that's just dedicated to emergency management specifically. Um, and we have our website, campussafetygroup.com, um, that they can reach out and send us an email or give us a call and 
we would absolutely love to have a conversation with them. Um, more than anything, it's just trying to help people ask the right questions um, to find the answers that they need and that they're looking for. Um, those are those are different ways to kind of get a hold of us. And we're here and we're we're open and we want to talk to you and we want to answer some of these questions and we want to help you solve some of these issues um, that we're seeing. Okay, here comes the toughest question of the day. All right. What book, books, or publications do you recommend to anybody who wants to learn more about this topic? Okay, so my first, well, it's actually not about emergency management, but um, I will say it's a great book for anyone who's involved in um, any type of like public face-to-face relations um, related to just how to deal with people. Number one, it's called The Thank You Economy. Um, it's a great book. More than anything, it talks about just, it's really focused on social media um, and the emergence and development of social media and how it's changed our culture and our business and marketing and things like that. But I feel like emergency management in part is marketing. We're always trying to market ourselves so people do something, right? So, um, but it's, it's awesome because more than anything, it's about helping people. Everything is done through small interactions. At the end of the day, it always comes back to human nature and everything is done through human interaction. So it's just really about being, um, real, being a real person, being, um, a human being and doing the right thing. It's just, it's a great book um, if you want some, some reading time. But if people are interested in emergency management, a related book, one book that I really like is called One Second After by William R. Forstchen. I think it's how you say his name. Forstchen, yep. Um, Forstchen, you're aware. Okay, so you've read it. Um, it's, it, I just, I, le- I really like it um, on a, a few different levels. I think number one, it, it talks about something that we don't talk about all that much um, in the field of emergency management. I feel like every now and then there's this article that talks about an EMP, but not, it's not something that we talk about a whole lot. Um, and I think more than anything, it talks about just the real risk of what can happen if we lose our power grid. Um, which is a very, very real reality and maybe not necessarily by an EMP. It could happen through a lot of other different means, um, not just something an electromagnetic pulse. Yeah, you know, it also deals with the um, the long-term issues of survivability and recovery after something devastating happens, so catastrophic. Um, and I think that that's, it's really important because it talks about the issues related to lack of electricity and the story is they try and make it um, relatable with this, this man and his family and his daughter who's insulin dependent and they, the power grid's been wiped out. They have no ac- um, access to electricity, no refrigeration, but insulin has to be refrigerated. And so what do you do? Do when you run out, what do you do when you don't have a way and means to cool medication that has to be cooled? How have you, what do you do when you have animals and you can't feed them um, and you have children? I mean, it really, it drives to like the core humanity of what are we, what are we going to do? And especially in California, we've been talking about, you know, we, we talk about an earthquake and we talk about a big earthquake and it's coming. And I just don't think people have any idea um, it's not just that initial earthquake. What happens six months down the road when we have nowhere to live and we can't rehabilitate our communities because they've been destroyed and we can't even stay in our communities because there's no housing availability or options. Right. Um, nobody has, I mean, 
the average American is not preparing for this. I mean, and that's the scariest part is most people don't have food and water for themselves, much less their families. And it's just, it's so terrifying to think that there is so much diversity and preparedness here in California. Um, And it really, this book just really drives home the core issues of what it's going to be like if we have something catastrophic happen here. So it's a great book. It kind of keeps you on the edge of your seat the whole time. Um, And I think it's pretty realistic. I mean, he really did his research and he has some pretty uh, great sources throughout it. So it would be a book I'd recommend. (laughs) Yeah, it is an excellent book. And just for the record, um, we had him on the show in episode 23. So if you guys want to go and check it out, it's episode 23 called The Korea Effect with Dr. William R. Forshall. And uh, if you want to listen to what he has to say, he's back there. So, And we'll put that in the show notes as well. So, um, well, thank you for those recommendations. Before we let you go, is there anything else that you'd like to say to the emergency managers out there? Don't lose your passion. Um, I feel like we as emergency managers every day, we fight a uphill battle of people who want, they, they want, we're constantly trying to convince people to do something, right? It's, it's not just our leaders, it's the community, it's parents, our staff sometimes, or even our, our superiors. It's don't lose your passion for what you're doing. You're in this field for a reason and you love what you do and that will speak volumes. So don't lose the passion because it can get hard and it can be frustrating. Um, but really what will drive you is the need and the want to do better, to do more um, and to help people and just don't lose it because it, you can get lost in the, you want to just make sure that you continue to stay positive through throughout your career. And if you find yourself going down that rabbit hole of everything's bad and things aren't great, <laughs> try and remember why you got into this field and then reevaluate and do something different to reinvigorate your passion um, in this field because we really need passionate emergency managers, um, not just in school safety, but across the sector. We need people who want to do good and be good and love what they do because that's how things are gonna change is when people realize that there is an impact, there is something that they're doing that's making a positive impact in their communities. That's where the reward is at the end of the day. When you feel like you've helped someone, you've touched someone's lives, you've inspired someone to do something better. Um, That's what we want. And that's what I would encourage everyone to remember as they continue their journey um, in in our our small field. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your time today. It was a great conversation and and, uh, I'd love to have you on again sometime. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Todd. I really appreciate it. 